I welcome David Gordon, who's going to bring God's word to us this morning. Um, David's not a stranger. He's part of our church now. It's great having retired ministers part here. So welcome, David. Can I pray for you? Is that okay? Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for David. And we just thank you for the word that you've placed on his heart this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would just open up our ears and our hearts to listen to everything that you would have us hear. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our series this morning entitled Reading Romans Backwards. And it's perhaps good to remind ourselves of why we're doing that. I suppose over the centuries, many Christian leaders, many theologians have focused on Romans 1 to 8 or Romans 1 to 11, and really seen those chapters as being almost the equivalent of a concise theology of the whole of the New Testament or almost as an evangelical basis of faith. But in so doing, we've often, in a sense, tread very lightly on chapters 12 to 16. Perhaps we've preached through them much more quickly and in less depth than in the previous chapters. And yet it's in those closing chapters that we discover the context of the whole of the book and also the purpose for which Paul is writing at all. And so let's go back to the city of Rome and remind ourselves as to why Paul was writing. Here we have a picture of Rome, and uh, probably in the middle of the 60s or the 70s AD. Paul was writing about 57 AD. And you can see on the map there, Uh, that the Colosseum is there in place. Now, they didn't start building the Colosseum until about 10 years after Paul was writing. But it just helps you to put it into context. So almost certainly, some of the craftsmen and some of the slaves in the church at Rome to whom Paul was writing at this moment ended up being involved in the building of the Colosseum. Little did they know that in a few years subsequent to that, they may end up visiting the Colosseum under different auspices. And of course, the north of the city, north of the Tiber, was largely seen as the place to live. It was where the affluent lived, full of palatial villas. But south of the Tiber, the land was much poorer and swampy. And there, the population density was as big as what it is in Mumbai today. So we reckon there was maybe 800,000 to a million people living in Rome at the time that Paul was writing. Certainly a much bigger city than perhaps we imagine. And within the city, it was, as I say, divided very much into north and south. The north full of palatial villas, beautiful squares, all the architecture that we love to go and see when we're visiting Rome on a, on a midweek break. But then south of the Tiber, what we call the Trastevere, um, full of tenements and uh, where people were squashed in, perhaps at the bottom level, uh, artisans, workmen, and then the higher up the tenement, the poorer the people became. If you can imagine Glasgow, uh, perhaps at the turn of the 19th century, 
many of the great merchants living in beautiful houses on the West End or in Pollock Shields. And then almost cheek ajar, we have thousands and thousands and thousands of people living in abject poverty in the Gorbals. It was a similar type of situation in Rome in the first century, with a very diverse population. Many people very wealthy, others very, very poor. So why on earth was Paul interested in Rome? And uh, not just because it was such a big city, not just because it was such an influential city, because it would appear that in Paul's mind, he saw it as being perhaps the main supporting church for his next big mission to bring the gospel to the edge of the Roman Empire. Alistair mentioned that in Romans 15, where it says, there is now no more work for me to work in these regions. And since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. So part of the reason, I think, that Paul was interested in trying to ensure that the church in Rome was functioning properly and were really together and understood God's mission was because he saw them as a great support base in the years to come. But I think the biggest contrast between Rome and a city in the West today is the culture of shame and honor. This culture of us and them, which I think we're familiar with in many cities in Asia even today. So, for example, there is this pyramid of honor. And everyone used that pyramid of honor as a filter through which they viewed the world as a whole. And of course, the emperor was at the top of that pyramid. At the bottom of the pyramid were women. And not even in the pyramid were the slaves. And you see, probably the worst thing imaginable in a family, in a society of shame and honor was therefore to bring shame upon your family. And you could do that in numbers of ways. You could bring shame in your family by simply marrying someone who was lower down the pyramid than you. Or even entertaining slaves in your palatial villa. That would bring shame on your wider family. And so that's why the church was facing an immense challenge. How can a church that is so diverse live together in community? And that's why Paul uses the language of shame and honor at the very commencement of Romans chapter 1, where he says, there is no shame. It's important to note that word. There is no shame in the gospel because the power of the gospel is able to transform everyone who believes. And again, the word everyone there is important. It's used about 75 times in those opening chapters. Everyone or all. Paul is really keen to remind these Christians from very diverse backgrounds in a shame and honor culture in Rome. He's keen to remind them that in the gospel there is no shame because everyone can be transformed by the good news 
of the death of Christ. The Jew, the Gentile, the rich, the poor, the person that lived in the palatial villa, and the person who lived at the top of a tenement in abject poverty. And of course, Paul goes on to argue, doesn't he, in Romans 1 to 8, that we essentially are all the same inside. So, again, the words all and everyone are there right through those opening chapters. We all fall short of the glory of God. Whether you're close to the emperor or whether you're at the bottom of the pile, we all find acceptance by God through the death of Christ, Paul argues in chapter 5. We all can cry, Abba, Father, through the Spirit, Paul argues in chapter 8. And then at the closing of chapter 8, we all, whoever we are, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, are secure in His love. Because if God is for us, no one can be against us. So Paul is keen in those opening chapters, not just to lay out some theological treatise, but to remind this very diverse congregation that ultimately, whether they are Roman citizens or slaves or Jews or Gentiles, rich or poor, ultimately we are there because of the grace of God. And so perhaps Romans 1 to 11 reminds us that it's because of the grace and mercy of God that everyone is invited to God's party. But chapters 12 to 16 remind the church of how to live that out. If we've all been invited to the party because of His grace and mercy, what does that actually mean for us living together in community? Those of you who are still in the workplace will know that diversity and inclusion are key words that we daren't ignore. And to use those same words, to use that same language in the context of Romans 12, what Paul is saying is that diversity is being invited to the party. People of all backgrounds in Rome have been invited to God's party. But inclusion is being asked to dance. And that's really what we're looking at in Romans 12 this morning. How do we dance together as a community of God's people? How can me with my two left feet, how can us with so many double left feet, how can we dance together as part of a diverse community that God has called together? How can we ensure that our hearts are beating with the same rhythm because we are drawn from such diverse backgrounds? That was the immense challenge facing the church in Rome and a challenge that faces us here in Stirling even this morning. But in the passage that Heather read for us in Romans 12, I think there's at least four key things there about the church that we want to notice. And really, we can only skim over them this morning. And the first one is almost certainly preeminent. We need to be a loving church. In, I'm not sure, maybe the NIV, it says, let love be sincere. And it's an interesting word, sincere, because in the Latin, it is sinisiri, which means without wax. Let love be without wax. What on earth does that mean? So you can imagine going along to Dobby's in North Rome in the first century and buying some pots 
clay pots, and they were described as being frost-free and uh, in perfect condition. But then whenever you got home, you realized there was a few wee cracks here and there or whatever. Or you can imagine going around some of the great squares in Rome and uh, looking at some of the masterpieces, some of the great marble statues. And you didn't know that the sculptor ended up, you know, putting a few little uh, dents in, in the statue that are almost unnoticed whenever his chisel slipped. But what used to happen both in the potter's house and in the sculpture's workshop is that they would apply wax and then sand it down, and you wouldn't even know that there were any blemishes. So Paul is saying here, let your love be without blemish. Let your love be perfect. I like this contemporary translation. Love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil. Hold on for dear life to what is good. Be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. We're all familiar with what Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 13. And I think as evangelicals, we actually don't believe it. Do you know what Paul says? He says, if we speak in the tongues of men and don't have love, we're a clanging symbol. And if we have the gift of prophecy, and if we have faith that can move mountains, and if we give all that we have to the poor or give our body to burn and haven't got love, we're nothing. You see, we don't really believe that, do we? We actually think that as individuals and as a church, that if we are possessed generously with charismatic gifts, that we're something. That we have the ability to expound God's Word in a prophetic way that makes it relevant to our age and our culture, that we're something. That if we sacrifice and give resources generously, if we have faith that is unbelievable, that we're something. But Paul says we can have all of those things, but if we have love, we're not something. We're actually nothing. Paul talks about the primacy of love both there and here. So at the very center of trying to teach the church in Rome how to dance together, how to enable their hearts to beat in harmony with one another, he says, make sure that your love is without wax. Make sure that you love sincerely and deeply in every aspect of your lives. But he goes on, secondly, to not only talk about being a loving church, but being a serving church. Some of you will be familiar with the old Chinese proverb that says, those that pull the oars have no time to rock the boat. And sometimes we need to be reminded that in the life of a local church, that uh, it's so easy just to remain on the sidelines whilst God invites us to come away from the wall and participate in the dance, to participate in all that God wants to do in the life of the congregation. Do you know, we have a wee house over in Ireland, and uh, we just got it during COVID, and uh, it's got a coal fire. I probably shouldn't admit that in today's world. 
But we went along to the local coal supplier last week, and uh, we, we didn't even know. I mean, what do you do with a coal fire? And he says, well, number one, there's coal. Number two, there's doubles. Number three, there's singles. Number four, there's slack. Number five, there's thermal coal, all different. I says, look, I just want to have a nice fire. But you know what it's like? It's lovely, isn't it, on a winter's night, sitting in front of an open fire? But maybe you have a wee doze off, or what you're watching in telly isn't that good. And maybe you're waking up half an hour later, and the fire's almost out. It's lost its flame. It's lost its passion. It's lost its energy. And then you get the poker, and you put the poker in, and suddenly it bursts into life again. And I think there's a danger, not just in the church in Rome, but a danger in all of our churches, that our flame begins to burn low. Instead of being actively involved in the life of our church, instead of being enthusiastic and passionate and committed to what God is doing in the life of our church, we end up sitting on the sidelines. But we need to allow the Holy Spirit to poke us, if you like. And as we focus on His Word, as we engage in prayer, as we allow the Holy Spirit to fill us afresh, so we again are, are, are brought back into life. I think Paul is saying something like that. Look, in this church that's so diverse in Rome, if only we all just work together for the mission of God with enthusiasm and passion, that will enable us to remain a community of faith, dancing together in harmony with God's heart. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. But also I think Paul is arguing here that we need to be a persevering church. Nero had just come into power whenever uh, Paul was writing here to the church. And actually initially... Um, Nero was greeted even by Christians warmly. Little did they know, as I say, that in 10 or 15 years' time, things could be very, very different. And so this church was going to face immense persecution, but already they were experiencing deep, deep struggle. Just imagine someone living in a villa on the north of Rome, perhaps with links to the equivalent of the Roman civil service, and being baptized and crying out, Jesus is Lord! What a radical, revolutionary statement in the midst of the center of the Roman Empire. Just imagine a trader working away as an artisan laborer in the bottom of his tenement on the south side of Rome. And then along with a few other members of the church, crying out in baptism, Jesus is Lord. And suddenly seeing his order book empty, suddenly seeing that he's now being socially isolated within his community. How is this church going to stay together in loving community. And so Paul says, be joyful in your hope. 
As the old Baptist preacher Spurgeon said, hope itself is like a star, not to be seen in the sunshine of prosperity, but only to be discovered in the night of adversity. And so they needed to go back to Romans 8 and to remind each other that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And then they could encourage one another to be patient even in the midst of their struggles and their afflictions. And as they prayed together faithfully and upheld one another in prayer, so they would persevere and come through. If this church was going to be a genuine community of faith, if this very diverse community was going to dance together to the beat of God's heart, they needed to be a loving church. They needed to be a persevering church. And they also needed to be a serving community. And I think the fourth thing, and the final aspect of the church, is that they needed to be a with church. You remember a few weeks ago, I talked about the withness of God. This is not quite the same, but I suppose it's similar. I don't mean by being a with a church that we're dead trendy and that we've got all the latest stuff to enable us to worship perfectly, whatever that means. But a with a church recognizing that we need to practice our one anotherness in Christ. And so there's a number of verses here and elsewhere in Romans that talk about being one another, about being together about celebrating that sense of one anotherness that we share in Christ. And so a church that's going to stay together, a church that's going to be a united community, needs to realize and practice being a with the church. And again, there are four little subheadings here. Paul says, we need to share with those in need. Or he talks about being willing to associate with people in low positions. Again, imagine, just imagine someone close to the emperor. And there were such, just read Romans 16. Imagine people like that in the emperor's household inviting artisans or slaves from the Trastevere on the south side of the city to come for dinner. Not only would that be a shame on them as individuals, but what an enormous testimony to the transforming nature of the gospel that such a thing could happen. Extending hospitality to others in the Roman context was a profound gospel witness to the love of Christ and how he welcomes us. But it's also true for us here in SBC. We're perhaps not quite as diverse as the church in Rome. But if we want to be a community of faith, dancing and beating with God's heart, we need to be a with it church. That means eating with one another, sharing hospitality together. And then secondly, in terms of the wee subheading, he talks about rejoicing with those who rejoice. I mean, you almost think, Paul, why do you even need to mention that? 
Of course, if somebody's happy, we'll be happy with them. But it's not as easy as that. I think Alistair's mentioned a couple of times. Imagine these Jews coming back from exile, probably secretly hoping that the church would be struggling desperately. And um, as a result, they would come back in and provide all the leadership and all the direction that this struggling church now uh, required. But whenever the Jews came back from exile and found that the church was growing, remember that you couldn't go into a big square in northern Rome and there'd be a big Baptist church in the corner with 300 people there. That isn't how it was. There were probably five or six congregations meeting in villas in the north of the city with 30, 40 people present in each of them. And then on the south side of the city, in the tenements, there might have been any number, 9, 10, 11, 12, little house churches meeting with only a dozen people in them. That's the sort of image we have. But it wasn't that easy. And imagine even today, do you know, here's a... Here's someone who just had a, a new child. And, and we're called to rejoice with them. Maybe send them a wee card or just say we're so excited about But actually, you're someone that's single or perhaps you've been trying to have a baby yourself and, and, and it hasn't happened as yet. And, and it's hard sometimes to rejoice with those who have something that you want and you don't have. Or imagine you're in your home group and, um, and someone just said, you know, happy days. I've just been promoted. I'm getting an extra 5000 a year. And you're actually struggling in your job. You're finding your job really hard at the moment. Or maybe you're unemployed and you don't even have work. And the cost of living. It's not always easy to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. But Paul says, if we want to be a really integrated, living community of faith, it's important to do that. And then he goes on, thirdly, to talk about mourning with those who mourn. I'm sure most of you are familiar with Winnie the Pooh. If you're not, well, I don't know what to say. <laughs> Today was a difficult day said Pooh. There was a pause. Do you want to talk about it? asked Piglet. No, said Pooh after a bit. No, I, I don't think I do want to talk about it. That's okay, said Piglet. And he came and sat beside his friend. That's what it means to be a with a church. And then fourthly, he goes on to talk about a church which is a with a church is a church that lives in harmony with one another, that seeks to build each other up. And again, you can imagine in Rome so many different agendas, so many people from such diverse backgrounds, what did they need to lay aside in order that they could live in harmony with one another? And so likewise here, we come from different theological traditions. We come from different social backgrounds. 
We even talk with different accents. With different educational achievements. We're a very diverse group of people. But actually, there's an awful lot that we hold on to too tightly that perhaps prevents us from living in harmony with one another. And sometimes we need to realize what are the things that are actually not ultimately that important that we can set aside so that we can focus on building one another up in terms of the things that are ultimately most important. Look, we come to the closing section there in verses 17 to 21. Um, I think our time is just about gone, but Alistair did refer to it last week, and I probably should spend more time on it, but if you're in your house group, I'm sure you'll argue about what it means in particular. But I think at the heart of it, Paul is saying here, to those who oppose us, to those who stand against us, to those who would harm us, as much as is possible, live in peace with such people. I think a recognition there that it's not always possible to do such a thing. But if you like the key line in the midst of those verses, don't be overcome by evil. Don't allow the enemy to get in, but overcome evil with good. And if you think about it in the context of Romans, one commentator has said, in the circumstances, in the Roman church, is this the bravest statement in the world? Just remember, in a few years' time, the Colosseum would be built. And even before then, there would be immense persecution amongst the believers in that city. And in that very context, Paul said, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Maybe it is the bravest statement in the whole of the book of Romans. But as we come to the end of this talk, perhaps all these injunctions and all these encouragements leave you feeling just a little bit guilty. Oh, I wish I was able to do that. Oh, I wish that I could love sincerely. I wish I could serve God with real passion and deep emotion. Oh, I wish I was persevering in prayer and encouraging others in their time of struggle. Oh, I wish it that I was more with it, taking time to be alongside people in their various situations. And you end up not just individually, but collectively. We feel inadequate. We feel powerless. Do you know, we're, we're not perfect. <laughs> I, I'm not perfect. I suspect nobody is. Rosie prayed earlier about those who are broken. And we all know exactly what she means by that. But we're all broken. We all screw up. We all make mistakes. We just think, how on earth, God, can we ever live up to those challenges? God, we are such a diverse people, and we want to dance in tune with your heart together 
as a community. And so we do forgive and we move forward. So two wee final things. Remember this, church, that even broken cranes still color. And as important as an individual Christian and as a church to remember that, God in his grace, God in his mercy, God in his love takes us in all our imperfections and in all our brokenness and he still uses us to color this community. Thanks be to God. But having said that, we still want, don't we, to pray. To pray that God, by His Holy Spirit, will continue His work of transformation so that we'll become more and more the sort of people that God calls us to be and will not settle just for where we are. We're not where God wants us to be. So let us pray that God will make us more like Christ. But even as we say that prayer, remember that God takes us in all our brokenness and can still use us to color this community. I want to finish with a prayer, which is really a song. You'd be glad to know that I'm not going to sing it. I've got to appreciate over the last couple of years, Catherine Jenkins. And um, we're going to listen now to a song from her. And really, this is the prayer for a diverse community to help us to dance together to the tune of God's heart. Peace. 